Hello guys and welcome to the MSC Performance Podcast. This is season four, episode 14. And today we have a special guest for episode two of our nutritional series with Joe Matthews. And I'm also joined by Mark. So hello Joe, welcome back. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure, always. Yeah. Always exciting to have Joe on board with, uh, with the last podcast we did with, uh, with yourself. That was one of, our, one of our most popular ones for sure. So uh, yeah, excited to do some more, more nutrition chat and learn a few bits myself to be honest, yeah. Yeah, well, we put out a, a Q&A, so we've got about 10 questions that we want to try and uh, rattle through. Uh, some of them performance-related, some of them health-related. So, uh, yeah, should we dive straight in? Yeah, let's go. Fantastic. So, the first question was from, uh, well, it's from a powerlifter, so it's going to be performance-related strength sports. It was uh, off-season body weight and, and time never cut for maximal performance, and I presume it means when should you be starting to cut? Should you be cutting further out from a competition? Or should you do the last couple of weeks and acutely cuts, which is something obviously you're quite an expert in? Yeah, so this is this powerlifter. He was a powerlifter, but I guess any kind of like performance, sport, strength, sport, weightlifting, powerlifting. Sure, I think it can be helpful. A lot of these recommendations and things I say today will depend on the level of athlete you are with higher level athletes needing a little bit more precision and attention to detail. So this guy is actually, he went to Worlds as like a bench athlete. So we talk Perfect. So we aim at that level. So I think you really want to zoom out on almost a year or two year or beyond schedule. So you know, it's like, it's, let's take it on a year. You know what your major competitions are going to be that year in terms of the ones where you're looking to place and you might have prep or warm-up competitions spaced in between that. And I'd look at the time you have between each of them and I'd let that time dictate how much you let your body weight increase and decrease from each one. So there's no set rule of how much within, within what percentage you want to be for competing. But generally speaking, at the start of a camp prep, you're probably going to be doing higher volume work. And I think just from athletes that work with, it's helpful to be a slightly higher body weight from an injury prevention point of view, from being able to fuel the training point of view. I think a, a conservative or sort of a general guideline is to be within 5% of your competition weight, your weight category. And that 5% could be tapered down over, say, the four to five weeks beforehand, just gradually week on week. That's really general because everyone's going to differ. Some people won't like to, to change their body weight in those final few days. and then other, other athletes will be happy to dehydrate a little bit. It really depends on where you perform best. So if people are happy to dehydrate a couple of percent in that final week, then those, those changes can be a bit bigger. But you've also got to take in mind, if you've got a competition, say, in five weeks, but then you've got another big competition in 10 or 12, so that gap between them is five or seven weeks, then you want to stay a little bit closer to that competition body weight because you're going to have to go through that same process again. So it's a lot about planning on a bigger scale rather than just comp to comp yeah. would be my, my recommendation. I think like the question that is getting at is there's been a bit of like a shift in kind of the focus in, in at least powerlifting and presumably weightlifting as well. We're used to these bigger seesaws, like you said, of body weight that people are generally trying to avoid now. But it's kind of moved towards where people are talking about when you're in these high volumes of training, while I understand from an injury perspective, you want to be in that surplus. But the argument on the other side of that is like when the training is a little bit lighter, more voluminous, it's probably a good time to maybe get your body weight down to within what you would acutely cut. Um, so that when you get to your actual harder training, maybe like the last four to eight weeks when the training's really peaking up in intensity, it's a good mm -hmm. chance then to be able to maintain to like the smallest surface. So that's then for the same reason to stay as injury free as possible mm -hmm. and to support that training. So if you have to choose between kind of one of those two, I know it's difficult, but would you lean more yeah. towards kind of 
trying to be at Conway all year round and then having to manipulate the last part so you can support the training when it's heaviest? Uh, I'm probably going to give quite a, quite a nuanced answer here and say it depends. So if I, most people are going to have a weight which they perform best at in terms of they get the biggest trade-off between their body mass and how much weight they can lift under the bar. And for a lot of people, that might not actually be their weight category. It might be a kilo above the weight category. It might be three kilos above the weight category. And I'd, my, my preference would be to keep people as close to that optimal performance that's just above the weight category. And that can differ from person to person. We've met and probably worked with people who can stay on weight all year round and their performance is absolutely fine. Whereas other people do need a little bit of up and down. Whether that up and down is for physical side or for psychology, or just having a absolutely of giving yourself more calories, more energy, a bit more flexibility in your lifestyle socially. Again, it's not necessarily a, a black and white response, but whatever wherever that performance is best at, I'd want to stay close to there and not drift up beyond that. And also that performance if it comes from the mental side of giving a bit more social flexibility. I don't think there's an advantage to being perfectly on weight or say within 1% all year round versus somebody who has those small drifts up and down. It does make a lot of sense what you say though with regards to that off season period where the training is going to be, okay, it might be a lot of volume, but from a powerlifting and weightlifting perspective, it's not going to be your heaviest work. So is it a bit of a waste to go in a massive, you know, go in a really big surplus and and then have to cut and you know be closer closer to the line and it, or even underneath it when when it comes to like doing your heaviest work when you're you're trying to peak but yeah there's uh, there's like say yeah got it joe got to be got to be a line somewhere and everybody's probably a little bit a little bit different with that um so yeah i'm putting something like a percentage and i guess that's where with your expertise you know getting to know each athlete you work with on an individual basis obviously helps with with that yeah absolutely and Luke, Luke's point's a really good one about when the work's lighter actually maybe it's harder to drop a bit of weight because you're not expending as much energy from the actual exercise but the good thing about doing the higher intensity low volume work is it's not really dictated by how much fuel you have available it's more freshness so that's going to come from how well periodized your training plan is and then you can use nutrition intermittent or sleep's obviously a massive one but you can use things like caffeine to get those those that extra couple of percent from sure. performance whereas the higher volume work will be dictated by primarily carbohydrate yeah, availability sure. so if you're dieting there you might not get that that adaptation early in the cycle you might feel fine in the fi- final few weeks but you might have actually missed a few yeah. bits a month yeah. or so out i think as well like when you talk about the mentality of it it just makes complete sense like four to six weeks out when you're doing heavy training there's less leniency to be like okay i'm gonna go out for like a meal with some friends i have a few drinks because i'm getting super cost to come i really want to avoid that but like 16 weeks out it's like yeah you know, i'm not going to turn down going out for a meal with friends so the calories might be slightly higher you have a couple of drinks so when the mentality of that is slightly further out if you're allowing that little bit of flexibility like i said from a, a mentality but also a performance basis um makes more sense to do that slightly further out so i still do like that but i think what you're saying is avoiding like these big spikes and doing like a, a ricky yeah. like yeah. 20 kilos yeah, get, yeah. allow yourself like a buffer of five percent maybe that you can easily cut back down on. there's a psychological sorry Jim, no, there's ahead. a psychological side of it as well isn't there if that you know you finish a major comp you know um, season and having that bit of a bit of a break psychologically eating some good food going out enjoying yourself a little bit um, you know, yeah, psychologically, you probably you probably need that. I mean, you know, from a 
field sport, you know, point of view as well. Like you finish a long season, you want to have a bit of a blowout at the end of the season. That's when guys all often get their holidays in and go go for the nights out and stuff like that. So, you know, it's probably got to be a little bit of a leeway. I don't know what he won, but then like, he was found like in a different country like three days later, still in his script. Do you remember? Yeah, it was a few days ago, yeah. <laughs> Freddie Burns, who won that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the premiership for Leicester and he just went, yeah, exactly, so, yeah. If, if, you, if you're an athlete listening to this and you think, well, I don't need that mental blowout side, I'd still encourage you to periodise your nutrition like you periodise training. So traditionally, it'll go back five to even 10, 10, five years ago. We now, if you're a power lifter, you understand the concepts of periodising your training in blocks. We'd do exactly the same from a nutrition perspective. So we know actually this is going to be a higher energy block where we prioritise this. And then we're going to taper down. So throughout the year, your nutrition in terms of your energy demand is coming up and down, but not just randomly to fit around birthdays, weddings, social cake. It's actually planned in alongside yeah. your training. So that's the way to do it. It's not, I wouldn't want people to think, oh, well, I can stay lean all the year round or, or the whole year round. So I'm going to do that. Actually, periodizing your nutrition is to make sure you get the most out of each training block rather than just staying as lean as possible yeah. all year. Yeah. Isn't actually as isn't actually the the optimal, is it? No, no. Just to, to and, stay completely lean all year round. Yeah. And a lot of athletes at the top level will do that now. They'll have their periodized training plan from their coach, their technical coach in SSC, and then the nutrition will fit to that. So yeah. the nutrition, for me anyway, comes after the training plan and technical plan is in place. We fit the nutrition to that rather than vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Mm. makes yeah. sense. You touched me um, in and out uh, about like losing. It's easy to, to your expenditures higher during certain blocks. How much of a difference do you actually think that is? I know it's hard to give a number on it, but like cause the, the expenditure from the sessions, you hear massively different numbers depending on who you speak to. Some people are like, oh, hundreds of calories, some are like, oh, measurable, and it's more about the external stuff. Um, how much of a difference does it make between like a typical volume session, like four sets of eight, high reps stuff versus like, I don't know? four sets of three mm. how much of a difference would that make there, there, there's not really any good sort of published data on energy expenditure from lifting weights so we've got estimates or best guesses yeah. if you're a power lifter who's not doing any conditioning work alongside like you're just doing your main lifts and a bit of accessory stuff then the difference between a high volume session and a low volume session is probably a couple of hundred yeah. calories it's yeah. quite minimal if you're doing more conditioning stuff like you're going to do some i don't know some Aerobic work and stuff. What's that? I believe it's. I believe it's above ten reps. What? Yeah. Then that that might change a bit, but but powerlifting is going to stay the same. If it's slightly different sport, if you're in a fight camp where you're still trying to make a fight weight, then the energy expenditure will still be really high because the fight training has a high aerobic and anaerobic component. It's a bit like Rocky Four, where the training gets really hard the day before the comp yeah. in the woods. Yeah, syringes. <laughs> Fantastic! I think that covers it really nicely. Uh, I guess talking about the phase of training, I had a question about uh, beta alanine, uh, which actually I didn't realise when I mentioned to you, but you did your PhD in it. What was your PhD in specifically? Uh, so still ongoing, unfortunately. So I'm five years into my PhD, one year to go, and they're looking at the effects of beta alanine and carnosine, which is what Beta-alanine ultimately turns into on insulin sensitivity uh, and muscle health in people with type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. So much more clinical, but okay. still good. Like, yeah, yeah, the performance side. Uh, the question was like, similar to your nutrition, would you recommend taking betaine at certain phases of training? Like, for example, it seems to have more an effect on the high volume work versus the higher intensity, low rep stuff. Would you recommend taking it? 
all the time or just phases of training? Yeah, for, from a sort of a health or a side effects perspective, there's no need to stop taking beta alanine because it won't be detrimental if you carry on taking it, um, even at higher doses. It's more probably a cost than benefit of carrying and taking it. It's, it's very unlikely beta alanine is going to help with any low volume, high intensity work. There's just no mechanism for it to do that. The only way it could work is if you take it in a pre-workout, you feel a tingling that some the pins and needles sometimes people get, and then there's a placebo benefit. So I think it, oh, this is awesome. I'm yeah, going to yeah, yeah. rip the bar off the floor. From a from a physical perspective, it's not going to make a difference. Where it can help is in those high volume sessions and blocks. The downside to beta alanine is it probably takes about four weeks to six weeks of supplementing at a fairly high dose to get that maximal performance benefit. So you'd need a four to six week lean into your block, then take it for however long that, so oh, yeah. four or five, four, eight week block is, then you could probably come off of it. So it might mean that you do a couple of cycles per year. So it's a little bit like creatine, you need to kind of load up the stores kind of thing or? Yeah, it takes a little bit longer than creatine and it's, it's probably more expensive. Did I read recently about creatine loadings actually like not necessary or is that is that false i read that recently like but obviously we used to go through like a loading phase of it and you know you'd be doing you know a lot more in that first few weeks and yeah go down to a normal level of maybe read that somewhere where yeah loading phase isn't isn't actually yeah the classic necessary. the classic loading phase would have been 20 grams of creatine a day mm-hmm. for for five days for a week and that 20 grams would be split up into four or five gram doses and then after that five days you've then saturated the muscles of creatine so yeah. you get the benefit that's what I understood. If, if you needed to like, like shit, I'm, I want to take creatine and get the effect in a week, you do a loading phase. Mm. But if you didn't with CPK, you didn't need it for next week, you just take the normal dosage in, it, in a month's time and get the benefit. It depends exa- if you need it short term or Exactly that. Yeah, most of the athletes I work with will take creatine, particularly the rugby players, but, and they will take five grams a day throughout and then we'll just stop taking it during the off season. For a power lifter, there's a trade off between water retention that you can get with creatine. Some people will take creatine and they will they will retain a lot of water in their muscle and their weight could go up a kilo or two. I, 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 I'm about a kilo and I don't particularly feel much, I don't know, it's hard to put a number on it, but I don't feel any like massive benefit mm. and the negative of being a kilo heavier. Exactly. So there's that, because you're in a weight category sport, there's that real trade-off between size and strength. Yeah. Creatine, again, is more likely to help with the high volume work. It's, it's probably not going to help with a 1RM, mm-hmm. but it might help with that higher volume block that then helps that's good to know. Take advantage of one. Give yourself that little bit of flexibility to go a little bit higher with the body weight. Doesn't matter, and it also doesn't matter because you're going to lose the water when you come off it. Yeah, and the washout for creatine will be about six weeks. So if you're really concerned about that water weight, you'd want to come off of it about four to six weeks before you weigh in, and that should be fine. Beta alanine has no water retention, so you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to worry about that. And then we spoke a little bit about uh, there was a recent study on the beta alanine looking at um, how it has more of an effect on a beginner versus an advanced because it seems to be like it's something that you can you improve from a, a training adaptation you get better at kind of buffering the, the lactic acid or you know whatever the, the beta alanine would do on a physiological advanced people train that anyway so it seems to benefit beginners more yeah and that's that pretty much goes for any supplement that exists the one that maybe has a has still has a more of a benefit for advanced lifters is caffeine but beta alanine and creatine they work by supplementing an energy system that your body can improve on if you're an advanced lifter those systems are already close to being maxed out which is why you're good at what you do mm-hmm. so when we look at beta alanine, beta alanine example when we look at that in sort of recreational lifters or people who train three times a week aren't competitive we see quite a large benefit maybe four or five six percent performance 
when you look at the highest level athletes, you see maybe one percent performance benefit, or even at that limit of that we can even say it has worked. Yeah. And that's pretty much the same. Is the closer you get to elite level, the less some of these extra things are, are going to work. Do you think that's why, like, when you see like all these people buying all these mad supplements, like beginners like really buy into it, or I guess it's a combo of also trying to get the quick results fast, but maybe on some level it's like they get such a good result from it as beginners they're like obsessed with like if you get to um like body power or something you see like all these people buying supplements that might not be like the most advanced guys because they get so, a bigger return and then kind of over at least now for my training probably yours as well like maybe you're just a bit more obsessed with supplements when you first 100%. started out i was obsessed with them and then like i take occasionally creatine protein yeah. and then have a pre-workout like caffeine yeah I used to be obsessed with what's going to give me. I've gone through exactly the same journey as a nutritionist. I think when I first started out just under 10 years ago now, I used to hear people say, oh, it's all you need to get the bottom of the pyramid in place, the big rocks in place, and then supplements on top. And I used to think, ah, well, if you throw them in anyway, they might help. And now I'm of the view that, and we'll come on to it a bit later, being consistent and relentless with the basics will be far more than any supplement can do. And it's not boring. It's not sexy. You can't sell it at body power, but the creatine, the beta alanine, protein powders, which is just the cherry on top. Once you've got everything else in place. In the early days of my training, like it was a rugby club I played for, was sponsored by USN. Nice. So it was like the USN all in one, and I think it was probably around the time I started training properly as well, and I was super, super lightweight for where I needed to be, and um, yeah, over the course of the year or 18 months probably bottom line 15 20 kilos like and it was yeah i probably obviously i was started training properly so that was probably the main reason but i think because i was taking like the supplementation with it it was like you know i was feeling a real good benefit from it so i was really obsessed with with taking it but yeah these days don't even have protein shake to be honest i I do need to get like i'm sloppy with creatine i'm sloppy but i need to get more consistent with uh with taking that but uh yeah, it's definitely, I think in your earlier training days, it's like supplements, supplements. And then. I used to buy like muscle and fitness mag and it was just for the adverts. Oh, what, what, what pre-workout? Um, That's John, expensive. Yeah, yeah, John used to buy like pre-workouts called like The Curse. I'm like, who's buying that? Do, man? do you remember Jack 3D? Yeah. <laughs> so I was talking to somebody about that the other day. That everyone knew that Jack, I was talking to, I was doing an anti-doping talk with some, um, some of the lads at Wasps and about, things you shouldn't have because they can return an adverse finding and you get a doping ban if there's something in it that shouldn't be. And I mentioned Jack 3D, which is a workout we all heard of, particularly like our age, because we knew it had something in it that wasn't supposed to be in it because it was so much better than everything else. And then after being on the market a couple of years, it was taken off because it had banned stimulants in it. I reckon you can still buy the old one, like if you want to eat. On the black market. Yeah, yeah, the black market, because there's the new Jack 3D, which is is the legal version, which is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And and on that as well, so if they're powerlifters, even the last question was talking about powerlifters, is any supplements you have, they need to be what's called informed sport tested. Uh, which means that that supplement has been batch tested independently to show it doesn't have any banned substances in. If you take something you just buy off the shelf in Holland Barrett, say, or you just buy a normal range off the internet, there's no guarantee that that's free from anabolic steroids or or stimulants. And if you're tested, it could be you you fail a doping test because of supplement contamination. Yeah, whereas if you take informed sport products, you're you're generally protected against that. Yeah, I've I've got to be honest, like I... I do buy the informed stuff if I've got like a big hand like 
Show Worlds because the likelihood of getting testing is higher. But in between, I'm really bad for it. Mm. Like, I buy just my protein, just more protein. I don't buy the informed, which I probably should. But well, that's good if, advice, people. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're not tested out of competition, then you can save your money. You can save your money. Whereas, um, the rugby players, for example, they could be tested at any point throughout the season, so they can't really do that. But if your competition is seasonal, if you like, then you, you can save your money on, on some of the cheaper supplements. But Is, is the curse informed support? Or is <laughs> I don't know. Is, is that, that I've, not, I've not heard of that one, mate. <laughs> like a zombie face. I don't want the curse. I don't want it to be cursed. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm not asking that one. You're asking that one. Big Mac. Okay, well, let's. This is definitely one of the rugby lads. I'd look into that. Buzz from the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You touched on it about um, like the, the, the supplements and stuff. So, someone asked me, is there a difference between like. Well, let me get the question. But like, is there a difference between different protein sources? Like, are the higher quality protein powders, are all protein powders of similar quality, or is it worth buying like a higher quality one? And then I think the other part of that question was, would it be better to have like a whole food source of protein, chicken breast, for example, or the equivalent amount of grams of protein, or from a protein shake? Yeah, uh, it's good. Yeah, it was quite a lot to unpick there, so I'll uh, I'll go through it in a few steps. So if you if you're having a whey protein shake then all of the whey protein shakes, as long as they're just whey protein, are pretty much created equal. So you've got whey protein concentrate, which means it's got a little of the milk sugar left in, or you've got whey protein isolate, which is just the protein component. You'll normally pay more for isolate than you will for concentrate. And the only reason you'd ever need to do that is if you had quite a sensitive lactose intolerance and that the sugars from the concentrate were enough to set you off. But that's going to be really rare, even in people who are lactose intolerant. So you concentrate, you're fine, you can save your money. If you're looking at veggie or vegan protein powders, like the pea proteins and the hemp proteins, one, not necessarily an issue, but consideration is if you're having plant-based source protein supplements, is that to get the same, we call it muscle protein synthesis. It's, it's, you can think about it as like the, the muscle growth response when you have food. That is slightly blunted from plant proteins compared to whey. So if you were to have 20 grams of whey protein, you might need 25 or 30 grams of the equivalent plant-based protein. And that's because of the amino acids that are in each type. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have the plant-based ones. It just means that your total dose probably needs to be about 20 or 30% higher. And then you even out, you're fine. So that's just one thing to consider. In terms of supplements versus whole food, it really depends on how many calories you have to play with and how quickly you need to eat. If, if you've got two training sessions in a day, then supplements can be really helpful in, that, in getting something in quickly after that first window. There's obviously the convenience that you can just throw a protein or recovery shake in your bag. Although if you're on a calorie reduced diet and your appetite is normally high and you're feeling hungry and that's something you struggle with, I would generally steer away from supplements towards food because the satiety. yeah, it's gonna suppress your appetite more and you're gonna enjoy eating probably a meal more than you will drinking a shake. Um, on the other side of that, with, with again, use the example of rugby players who could be eating 4,000 calories a day, a recovery shake is really helpful because we can get in, if we throw like a few things in it with the protein, we can get in four or 500 calories without suppressing their appetite too much. Yeah. So it's an easy way to shunt in extra calories for the guys who need more. Yeah, especially post-training and things as well. Like, you know, a semi-pro level, you're finishing training at like nine, half nine on a Tuesday night, traveling back, cooking up a meal is not always what you want to do no um you know time wise potentially you know get good you know, 
good, good shake in you, you know, after training could be, could be useful, I guess. Do you think it's worth, well, the, the second question is actually pretty much asking is like, are Huel and meal replacement shakes healthy? Like, if you just swap in your 500 calorie lunch for a 500 calorie meal replacement shake, is that like, would that be quite, quite less healthy or would? Yeah, I, I, I've not I've not used Huel personally or with any athletes, but the way they're marketed, they seem to be coming across as if they're a healthier meal replacement shake. I'm more cynical now than I have been in any point in my career. As you see, I've kind of seen this play out a few times before. First, it was Herbal Life, then it was Cambridge Shakes, then it was this, that, and the other. So every few years, there's a new one that's just repackaged, and they're always just a meal replacement shake. It's some sort of carbohydrates or some protein powder. And the meal replacement has to have a certain amount of vitamins. Yeah. To be classed as a meal. Yeah. So even like the Herbal Life ones had a multivitamin in effectively. Yeah. I think if you're if you're an athlete, you can make your own recovery shake that would be way better. If you can't be asked, then maybe Huel's fine. The the time I can see Huel maybe being useful is if it's um, if you're say a not a professional athlete, maybe you've got a very busy job in home life and food prep is and that time is the big limitation in in helping you then having a shake that you can have in the mid-morning or lunch might be useful. It wouldn't be something I'd ask people to do, but I think there is a time and place for them, but it's probably not something people want to be doing Maybe every day for the rest of their life. Then, yeah. No, no, if busy periods, like if you've got a busy chunk in work or uh, with family life, that you, there are t- again, think about periodizing your nutrition, even as a non-athlete, you can think about times in the year or the month you're going to be busier and less busy. It might just be something you have for those busier times to, to give yourself a bit of breathing space elsewhere. So maybe from like a nutritional perspective, they're, they're fairly similar, but from like a, a mentality and from like a psychological, it might just be difficult to, to sustain it. Like I said, the satiety is not quite there. And is that right? Or? Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think my preference is always going to be for people to get the nutrients through food because there's just so much more that comes with that. But shakes have their place if used appropriately. I, I wouldn't want to move someone onto shakes or say they have to have a shake and then they don't develop a good relationship with food because they're used to having everything powdered or they start to overeat them when they do eat because food is now more of a luxury because they're used to having these shakes so there's a lot of trade-offs there if you've used those meal replacement shakes and you found they work i'm not going to stand anywhere and stop you but there might be another way that works just as well yeah I think the person that asked this is like it's quite busy very minimal time to come so i think he chooses that rather than having um, a, a meal because you yeah. that time, so. I suppose as daft as, daft as it sounds like if he's at work and you know going down that route of I'll have a quick shake rather than eating food the, the key then is not to as, as obvious as it sounds not having a shake and then a, <laughs> following up with a pack of biscuits or oh, yeah. something like that you know and uh, like I say real, getting a real meal real food's going to be preferable isn't it yeah and if you've got like a corporate job or you're a lawyer or something where you can work 12 hour blocks with very little break if, if having a meal replacement shake is the difference between having something versus nothing, nothing. Yes. then yes. It, then it can be a, a positive context isn't it yeah. um, someone's asked a question about uh, uh, sex pre-fight or pre-game um, this used to be a big thing that I remember reading years ago I, I wasted many a good night by uh, on a Friday night oh. reading that Having sex at the I wasn't expecting to yeah, be yeah, reading, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe it gave me a good placebo effect. Uh, you know, 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, many a Friday nights wasted for me with that. But um, yeah, is there any 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 truth in that, or uh, yes. or can we put that myth to? Well, if it is a myth today, I don't know. well, this has actually been studied. So I, I can't. I can't. I'm volunteer for one of the studies. Actually. Were you in it? Were you? I can't remember the exact time frame. I think it was seven, it was either five or seven days in which men completely abstained mm. from ejaculations. So that was with themselves, with other people, anything, just kept it all in. And in that short period of time, you see an increase in free testosterone. I think it was around 40%, which you might think that's sound massive. That's about as big an increase in testosterone as we can get doing anything to our bodies. But small link, and that is a small increase, sort of what we'd call physiological changes in hormone levels don't affect acute strength or performance. So even though you see that big increase in testosterone, it doesn't make people any stronger or faster. The only thing that makes you stronger and faster is supra physiological hormone concentrations, which come from like, doping and injections and, and steroid use externally. Just, which move that testosterone much more than, yeah. than just keeping it in your pants for a few days. So it can change testosterone. That's not a myth, but the myth is that it's going to have an impact on performance. Context again, if, it, if having sex before competition means that you lose sleep, it might well be that the sleep loss negatively affects performance, but it depends how long. The one I hear with fighting is people, if, they haven't, if they've abstained, they're more aggressive. Rather than if they've had sex or any that, then they're not as, they don't feel as aggressive. Uh, I've worked. I mean, I, I, <laughs> sure. I think we're, I think we're in. I think we're into like anecdotal stages now. But I've worked with a lot of fighters who agree with that and abstain in the final week for that for that reason. Yeah. Like if that makes like it, if, if that makes it feel yeah, you know, if, more if, if, even if it's a complete placebo. Exactly. Then, and, there are many things. Free, yeah. There are many things that athletes do that, if it's a case of, well, if they feel it helps, it helps. Yeah. Because yes. Because of yeah. that mentality yeah. aspect. So it's not for me. It's certainly not something I advise on either way. I think. Well, you superstitious just, stuff. Yeah, Easier like you that. when it comes to that. Yeah. How did you feel on that Friday night side when you were just reading about it? Did you be quite aggressive then on the pitch? Or? Yeah. 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 Sort of. Um, you know, whether it was uh, due to that or uh, I'm just naturally maybe a bit aggressive on the pitch, I don't know, but uh, yeah, seem to seem to do the job. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another quick one, I guess, then, uh, diet drinks. Um, are they healthy? Like, is it okay to have a decent amount of artificial Ooh. sweetness? I guess there's, there's like a safe amount and it's quite a high amount that humans can tolerate. Yeah, so if we're thinking like Coke Zeroes, sugar-free yeah. Red Bulls, stuff like that. Yeah, gen generally speaking, diet drinks are not going to be a problem at all. There have been a few myths that have circled and tend to come up every now and again that artificial sweeteners can cause various diseases or can affect insulin sensitivity. Yeah, still spiking into that. Aspartame was a one year. Yeah. Everyone freaked out now. There's no good evidence that any of the sweeteners have a have a negative effect on humans. There are a few studies in mice and rats that show they can have a negative effect, but the doses normally given are about 50 times what a, a normal person would have in a day. Yeah. So there's, there's, no, there's no credible evidence. I, if somebody was chugging back a few liters of diet drinks a day, I think there's other things there to work on. That wouldn't be what I'd recommend, trying to get them onto some water-based stuff. But if people are having a Coke Zero, 
or a sugar-free Red Bull a day. That's no, no, no trouble there at all. It's not going to have any. any the poison is in the dosage. Yeah, well, what, I've given that example before about the rats and mice given 50 times the amount, and somebody said, well, what about in a human? That could accumulate over time, so it would be bad over a long period of time. So the analogy I like to give is, is water, that we're supposed to have a few litres of water a day. If you had 50 times the amount of water in a day, you would die. In fact, if you if you probably had about yes. 10 litres of water, That's literally you would... That's question as well, by the way. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah. We'll come on to that. Drinking water and staying hydrated is healthy, but when does it become unhealthy? I've heard of water poisoning where you drink so much water that you're basically flushing your system out of minerals and vitamins and nutrients. Yeah, this is, this is unlikely to happen on a normal day-to-day. Where it, where it can and has happened is in marathons, um, where people, and it's normally in people who take a long time to complete the marathon. So if they're drinking lots of water that doesn't have electrolytes in, and then they're, lo- they're sweating and they lose electrolytes in the sweat. Yeah. So you have an increase in water and body fluid and a decrease in electrolytes. And you can't regulate the water and electrolytes across body compartments. And the way it's being called in the news is that you effectively flood your brain. It's called hyponatremia. And people in long distance marathons have sadly died from drinking too much water. A normal person day to day, that's not likely to happen because your body will stop you from drinking water and feedback loop. But in exercise, where you're also sweating, it can happen. In a normal gym session, it's not going to happen. I mean, we're talking like upwards of 10 litres of water in a day and where you're not replacing those electrolytes, yeah. which is unlikely to happen. It's the only time I can think about that in a gym setting is if you're doing like a water lawrence and you're intentionally going low salt with that diet. Mm. Like, is there a point there where you would not recommend someone drinking more than X amount of litres if they're on a low salt to acutely manipulate their weight? Yeah, so water, water load is common in powerlifters and fighters. And I've worked with a lot of fighters and we've done a lot of water loads. It is something I do take people through. But I think the water load you hear about sort of the bro science water loads are massively overbaked and don't need to be that much. I've heard stories of people drinking 10 litres or more. Really, you'd, the water load would be 100 millilitres for each kilo you weigh. So if you're 70 kilos, that's seven litres in a day. And that would only be for three days. And that's seven litres split out across 12 hours with, with no more than a litre to be taken in a single hour. And you still have your normal meals and electrolytes within that. And you would also need to work with someone who closely monitors you throughout as well. So it's very different from drinking 10 litres with no replacement of electrolytes in four or five hours. I would clamp it. So the heaviest person, the heaviest fighter I've worked with would be just shy of 100 kilos and we clamped it at eight litres. So it'd be lower for lighter, but then clamped at the higher end. Even then I'm I'm sceptical of how much difference a water load weight. So for for anyone who's not familiar, water load, you have three high days of water intake and then one day of tapered water intake which is lower some of the crazy stuff you hear is people will have six or seven days of high water intake then nothing at all which is which is not how it should work so how much lower do you go on that taper so on that taper we're down to about 15 to 20 milliliters per kilo yeah so if you're 70 kilos, I think it works out as about 1.2 litres. What's 1.2 to 1.4 litres is what I'd normally go again, spaced out throughout the day. So you're not starving or dehydrating yourselves by any massive way. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about the water. There you go. Decent. Not, not unless you're running a, a very slow marathon in the heat and you're just drinking lots of water. Right? Yeah. Market's time. You've got to do it. Big Mac, please, there. <laughs> 
yeah, it's definitely one of the rugby kind of lads has access. Uh, this is typical rugby nutrition. Big Mac versus Zinger. I don't know if there's a question in there, but... It's, uh, yeah, it's the... Uh, which one's got the better macros? Which, which one's um, got the better, better macros? Big Mac Big versus Mac Zinger, Zinger, which has got the better macros. Um, what is Zinger? Is that Burger King? <clears throat> you know it's KFC. Okay, I've never had a KFC in my life. Really? Yeah, ever. It's an exclusive on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Like two big takeaways. Friday nights, you're not Friday Mark with woman. Yeah. Or I've, had a McDonald's, I've had McDonald's, obviously, in Burger King. I've never had a KFC. I don't know why. Just okay. never like the look of it. I guess the phrase, we can answer that as a silly question, but then after that, it's like, if you're on the go and you've got minimal options in terms of like getting food and you've not prepped some food, you need a meal, what would be a good option for like maybe like a fast food or a supermarket getting like a decent meal in on the go would be a... Yeah, so that would be the way I'd take it. I mean, this question is I've, this question is exactly the sort of thing I'd be asked by. I've been asked by firefighters when I worked, did a lot of work, firefighters or rugby players. And it's yeah. like, oh, which one of these should I have when I'm passing the service station? And if people are eating and traveling on the go, they're, I mean, in, in, a, in a diet that's well balanced everywhere else, having the occasional Zinger Tower or Big Mac is, is not going to completely derail you. Zinger Tower, you knew the, uh, the double. The double. <laughs> so I've, I've, uh, yeah, no, no further comment. <laughs> but if you are traveling and on the go, then there are now more than ever, there's so many better food options you can have. And if you, it's a, it's a service station, you've got like a WH Smith's or Marks and Spencer's or Waitrose. You might have to pay a few quid, five, six quid for a meal deal, but you can get one of their high protein milk drinks. You can get a sandwich and a snack and you can normally get 50 grams of protein in a, in a meal deal these days. Stuff that I think still tastes pretty good and I'd be happy to eat. If it's you do want to have the takeaway occasionally, then absolutely crack on, but it's not going to be the best for helping you adapt to the work you've just put in. So if you've got a train the next day or two days later, or you've got another where I'd be much tighter on people and their dietary control is if it's, um, say rugby or, or football where you've got a match on the weekend yeah. and then another match midweek We've, there's no time for fucking around in those few days because our recovery has to be has to be on point well even for, for teams traveling i mean there was a, a big uh there was a, a big mac gate last uh, last season at bourneville where okay. we were traveling up north for a game and it was like a four-hour journey and we stopped off about an hour and a half before kickoff and two two of the lads might be three who uh, have, have had some serious shit for it? Uh, basically, had a like Big Mac and a full like McDonald's about like an hour and a half, two hours after the kickoff. Obviously, far from far from optimal. But if you you know on a, on a serious note, if you are in that position, you're travelling and you're playing on a Saturday, and you've not prepped as well as you should have, um, and you are hour forty five, two hours out from kickoff, and, you, and you're hungry. I guess it's quite general, but like I'm right, just thinking maybe two hours and a bit, but like, like you say, a sandwich, like a, a basic sandwich, like it's yeah. going to your, uh, finding a shop within the service station. Yeah, that pre-match. It's probably, it's probably better than a Big Mac. But. Yeah, I, I can explain why. So that pre-match meal is really important for your performance in the last quarter of the game, those final 20 or 30 minutes. Because if you've not fueled properly, you'll be absolutely fine for the first 40, 60 minutes. And that's when your stored carbohydrate in your muscle will start to deplete. So what you've then eaten beforehand, which, which is still, will still be circulating, some of it will still be circulating, is what will help your performance. Or it, it means that in the start of the match, you use that fuel you have in your bloodstream, if you like, rather than what's stored in the muscle. So you can use the muscle stores for later in the game. Mm. With a Big Mac, it's 
really high in fat, fat, yeah, high fat and, so and not as yeah. high in carbohydrates. And it's the carbohydrates you want for high intensity exercise performance. And also the fats will slow what we call gastric emptying, which means the food will stick in the gut a lot longer, which means it's, the nutrients aren't getting into the blood and the muscle. The downside for rugby is if you've still got a lot of food stuck in your stomach, you're going to take some hits in the game. Yeah. You're probably not going to feel great. Nice. You might feel yeah. a bit sick. For performance, it means you're not actually using that food as fuel. Yeah. So you really want to prioritize a sandwich, um, some sort of like chocolate milk drink or flavored milk or fruit juice would be perfect and maybe a piece of fruit or two. Yeah. And you think in, in terms of the amount of carbohydrates, you want more than a gram per each kilo you weigh. So if you're a 90 kilo rugby player you want more than 90 grams of carbs and that how high you go depends on just how well you tolerate food mm. i can see you've just googled I ingredients just in say the Big the oh yeah go ahead uh, Big Mac by itself, 550 cal uh 45 grams of carbs 25 proteins that part and then it's the fat obviously 30 grams of fat but people will be having that with fries which will be what about if you just yeah. eat by itself with uh a chocolate milk uh, if so it's, I know, I know, I know. There, there are no conditions under where a Big Mac can be can be used as something useful before exercise. After, I'm, I'm a, bit a bit more lenient. It's, it's, it's by no means going to be perfect for recovery, but beforehand, you, you're really just taking a few percent off your performance. Where if you've been training all week and prepping, it's I don't such know. a waste. Yeah, it's just a waste, and it's a, it's something you can have at another point in the week that's that's not going to not going to be a detriment. So to the rugby lads, have it on the way back from a game rather than on the way. Are these unnamed players or are they going to be publicly named and shamed? Uh, unnamed, unnamed for the sake of the podcast, but yeah, I think they've been dealt with accordingly. <laughs> You've also got the calories from the zinger. But yeah, it's not much different. Like, it's 425 calories, it's slightly less, 43 grams of carbs, 18 fat and 28 protein, which I think the zinger wins, but no one's winning any awards for it. No. It's just the better, it's the, the lesser of the two. And, it, and an example people like to give when they talk about fast food and performance is Usain Bolt having chicken nuggets before his 100 meters. I hate that chat so much. <laughs> I, I think the context here is that most of the time he won't be eating that. But also he competes in a race that is not dictated by fuel availability. Yeah. So 100 meters is over for him in nine and a half seconds. He doesn't need loads of carbs stored in his, his muscle because he's not going to use them. With, we're talking about events that go beyond the hour where fuel is going to dictate performance. So for him, whatever he has to eat in the morning to feel like he is the fastest man in the world, you go yeah. and do you. As long as it's not going to be too heavy and weigh him down. If he wants chicken nuggets, you go and eat chicken nuggets. The story was that was he was in Beijing, wasn't he? And it was, uh, you know, I think he had a bad, a bad meal, a bad experience on the first night he landed or something like that and then eventually tapered into like just eating chicken nuggets like mm. a few days before the race I mean I'd be shocked if he didn't eat something else apart from chicken nuggets yeah. or else he'd probably be dead but like it's uh, yeah, people take that context and say well all he ever eats in his whole life are chicken nuggets so I can do what I want to be as fast as Usain Bolt yeah and the other, exa- <laughs> the other example say, I'd say to people when you're as good as Usain Bolt then you can eat chicken nuggets or yeah. with S&C you might have heard like the uh, Messi example. Messi doesn't do S and C. When you're as good as Messi, you can stop doing. Yeah, S&C. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in the meantime, if you're that good, you'll get score. Un- like, get under the yeah. bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This leads very, I think, into like I was talking to you earlier about. There's been like a shift in powerlifting. There's a couple of like high level powerlifters that put a big emphasis on like higher quality foods and 
quote unquote healthier choices of foods. So the league in water, rather than having chicken breast, having like organic chicken breast or like a non corn fed chicken breast, like the, the highest levels that we can get. Obviously, there's an additional cost with it. outside of like the macro breakdown. So, you said like pre workout, avoiding like the higher fats, etc. If you want calorie for calorie, so like normal chicken breast versus organic, like free range chicken breast. How much of a, an impact would that have, I guess, on performance and also on like health indicators and markers? And is it worth everyone's different in terms of financial situations? But is there a benefit to health? Yeah, I'll try and come at it from a few different angles and give situations where it might be worth doing and might not be. So, if we're talking just about physical performance, there's, in my view, there's no benefit to having organic or higher welfare foods they're not because performance will be mainly dictated by the macros of your diet and the energy content and as long as food quality is generally good elsewhere that shouldn't be an issue so i don't see that as as important for performance at all if um if you're talking about organic foods generally fruits and vegetables the the benefit you're getting from organic produce is that it hasn't had pesticides well that's not true Uh, you're still allowed to use pesticides that contain 5% of what would be non-organic components. So it's effectively 95% free of non-organic pesticides. Uh, The residue, what are called pesticide residues, are monitored on foods and they have to be within low limits that are shown not to be harmful to human health. And occasionally you will get crops and sites where they do go above limits, then they're controlled back down. So when we look at people who eat organic fruits and vegetables versus those who don't, the only difference you see in terms of health is that it's linked to socioeconomic class. So basically having more money, you tend to be more healthy because you can afford to buy those sorts of things. Having said that, if money is not an option and you prefer the tastes, some people say organic produce tastes a bit better, it's a bit richer flavor, then by all means carry on. I'm not, it's not that I want it banned from the supermarket, yeah. but, but there's no, if, if it does help, it's going to be very minor for meats was there's a different consideration because the higher welfare meets it's how the animals have been treated as well so if you've got um say what, what was the example you gave for chicken breast was it corn? it's like a free range yeah <clears throat> i can't maybe corn fed i don't know if that's even better but yeah like corn fed free range versus like as an barn weird chicken breast yeah so some of the higher welfare meats normally means the animals have had better living conditions because of that you normally get better quality meat in terms yeah. of actually taste and appearance there, there is a there is data and research evidence that it has much more of an impact on meat quality than it does on fruit and veg quality. For performance, it's not going to make a difference. The protein from a frozen chicken breast, when you account for the weight and the water that's probably been added, will be the same protein or amino acid compositions that will be for an expensive, fancy chicken breast. Where there might be a small benefit could be from a health perspective because the, the fatty acids that are in high welfare meats will tend to be of healthier fats but with a chicken breast we're talking about minimal on that fat anyway so it might be more or better in sort of your fattier meats like pork pork or beef and that. But yeah i'm if it's from an animal welfare point of view then the, the more expensive products are, are going to be better from a performance point of view probably doesn't matter from health it might make a small difference but, but certainly not as big as some of the other things it's probably for most people bigger things to worry about, isn't it? Yeah, and I think if, if it means spending an extra 30 quid or 40 quid a month on your food bill and you think that's for performance, you'd probably be better spending that 30, 40 quid on an extra coaching session or mm. new, 
another aspect of your nutrition, like planning or some meal preps if you're tight on time, yeah. rather than just that organic label. So there's, there's always a trade-off, yeah. yeah. What about stuff like, um, oh, yeah, so that's the same question, yeah. So the big thing this guy said is like, he's come away from like trying to have like protein bars and like quick, easy fix processed foods and trying to eat more kind of whole foods. Again, like is that from a health perspective, cutting down on processed foods a good idea? Yeah, I, I, there's for, for most people, we'll call it 80-20 rule, yeah. which you might have come across before. Sure. You can apply it across lots of different disciplines as well. But if 80% or the target should be to get to 80% of your diet based on minimally processed foods, and then the other 20% might come from processed food. It could be supplements, could be a protein bar, could be a takeaway at the weekend. But getting people to have that 80% from minimally processed foods can be quite difficult. and It might take you a few months or longer to get there. So I'd always encourage people to focus on that. If the majority of their protein intake is coming from supplements and protein bars, I'd look to, to see if we can do something about that yeah. by changing some of the meals and breakfasts first. If you've got someone to that 80, 20, they want to take it further. Like let's say they want to be the extreme. They want to get the small benefit. They're at the top. They want to get the small benefit. Would there be a benefit of going to 90, 10 or 95, 5? Yeah, there can be, as long as when you get to that point, as long as the person's got a healthy relationship with food. Sure. We see a lot with sort of the, the Instagram world and that people who normally have that tight dietary control generally aren't normally have the best relationship with food or might have orthorexia and body image issues. If, and I have worked with full-time athletes, particularly at the elite level, who will be closer to 95.5, but they have a very good relationship with food and the food they eat is still very flavorful, home-cooked, they're not restricting. They're just relentlessly consistent with the basics and they prefer to eat that way. So it's possible. It's absolutely okay. possible. Great. I think we just got one more question, which you want to read your writing, mate, unfortunately. In your experience of working with people athletes, is there a difference between uh, like what are the, the advanced and the elite guys doing that the intermediate guys aren't doing? And what are the intermediate guys doing that the beginners aren't? You've got your big box. If you'd have asked me this question eight years ago, I'd have said that there was some sort of secret source or combination of nutrients or split of macros that the best people were doing that other people weren't. The more time I spend at the sort of elite end of sport, it's just that the, the best athletes or the, the athletes who are best with their nutrition are just, <clears throat> I kind of just said it, they're relentlessly consistent with the basics. So everything's always prepped everything's always planned they don't miss a meal they have fewer days off if you like they don't need to have days off because the food they make is actually very tasty and flavorful they get sustainable same as training isn't it they get seven they get seven to nine hours sleep a night and if you're relentlessly consistent with those basics over three or six months the change in performance and health will be phenomenal it's most people are a lot less consistent than what they probably think until they're shown that they're not consistent the, the guys at the top, they're not taking any different supplements uh, that people have else got access to. They, they just know how much they eat. So, for example, pre-match, or the day before a match is a really good example. The guys who are the best will have an extremely high carbohydrate, low-fat day the day before a match. And whereas somebody who's new to that or is just having a go, if we use the example of a 90-kilo rugby player, they might have three or 400 grams of carbs on that day before the match, whereas the elite player might have 700 grams of carbs because they're just so well drilled in what they need to do on that day. Mm -hmm. And that fueling on the day before will help their performance on. Yeah, the it's next not rocket science, but it's just taking no. that a little bit more seriously, that consistency. Yeah. And 
but it takes time to get good at that as well. You can't go straight from no knowledge to perfect. That takes time. But once you get there, you can stay there for the majority of your career. And whether that be in sport or otherwise, it makes living an athlete lifestyle a lot easier and staying closer to your ideal performance or body weight a lot easier. I feel like you just said like, it's just not sexy, is it? When people ask me, right. oh, well, that's the thing. They want the they want yeah. their golden nugget, don't yeah. they? And it's the same with training and the literal golden nugget. Yeah, your mate. Well, I was going to ask the guys that had the uh, the Big Mac. Are they good players for the ball? Are they starters or are they like subs? Are they the superstars? One of those players has left now. It's, uh, not had his contract reviewed. Um, <laughs> Yeah, good, I mean, good, good, good players, but, yeah. but the I think the big issue was that the performance on the day as well was pretty pony. Which, if you if, if you turn up and you play like a rock star, it's probably swept under the rug, isn't it? And nothing's been brought up. But I think it was a particularly bad day at the office for the team, um, but maybe like specifically. A couple of those sort of three, I think it was three players. I think a couple of them played particularly poorly, and it obviously doesn't doesn't look look great, does it? Um, so yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you gotta you gotta play like a rock star, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, there is, you can only get away with it if you're nine, ten out of ten performance on the pitch. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I had a couple uh, of times recently. Why not? All of a sudden, Mike's had this like massive shift. He's, he's performing fantastic. Well, like, oh, what would have been difficult to program? And I'm like, program is literally the same as like six months ago a year ago. But now, like, they're sleeping better, they're eating better. Like, these fundamental things we replaced. I'm not changed a thing. Nothing has changed. It's just they they've changed everything else, and they've got everything else a bit more in control. It's so similar to how you would look at an SNC, like a periodized program. You look over six months, you've got however many sessions they need to complete in that time. If they complete every rep of every session, you're going to get better. Exactly. Same yeah. with nutrition. If you get, not every, because you can have that bit of room flexibility. Let's say you get 90, well, even 80% of those meals right. Most people are probably at about 40 or 50%, mm. just because they're not eating enough or the right foods or they're, they're they, they remember the good days more than they remember the bad days as well. Mm. They remember that excellent meal they had, but they forget maybe the food station they had at the wrong time. Is, is that an unsexy answer of like consistency, isn't it? Like with field athletes as well, you hear the stories about you know the guy who stays behind and hits you know twenty three kicks you know off the left foot, you know twenty off the right or whatever, and just practices the the base. You know the All Blacks. You know rugby always talk about you know their, their training is so basic on the field it's like the most basic handling drills catch pass catch pass catch pass but like it's done the basics are done so often and with such consistency that like that's where they win games that ability yeah. to shift that ball a tiny bit quicker just slightly better handling you know it's not they, they haven't got like one specific drill like you know coaches are looking you know oh the all blacks what are they doing or what's that what's that one amazing like passing drill they're doing or like field based drill and it's like literally like in a line of four bang 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 mm. and like you know it's just so basic but they do the basic so well and that's why that's why they're the best powerlifters is like you know the ones who are missing sessions the ones who are missing reps the ones who are turning up getting, the, getting yeah. the job done you know that's uh, that's that's what you know, it comes down to and that's where the, the Best come through, I think. You hear Colby speak, he talks about like when he was trying to get into the NBA, like he'd get to bed at like eight, he'd get up at 3 a.m. and he'd get an extra session in like three till six, then he'd go to school or whatever, then he'd train in the afternoon and night. 
So I get an extra two hours of practicing every single day. So there's an over like a week that's like 14 hours. <coughs> mentality, over yeah. A month, yeah, yeah. As an example, just to put this in context of nutrition, one of the things I do with a lot of the athletes and some of these fairly top-level athletes is we have a grid. It's like a habit tracker, so it would be every day of the week, and then each day of the week it's got the meal they should have. So it would say breakfast, might say mid-morning snack, pre-training boost, which is normally a high-carb snack depending on the session, post-training feed, which is maybe some sort of smoothie or recovery shake, uh, mid-afternoon meal, evening meal, pre-bed. There's normally seven or eight things and they'll be adjusted based on their training schedule. And each meal, we don't track grams and everything on, on my fitness pal or anything like that. It's just traffic light system green. I had exactly what I was supposed to have at that time. Not the meal, but the composition of the meal, the quality of the foods. Amber, it wasn't ideal, but it was still okay. I did what I could in the situation. Or red, I even missed the meal or it was a bad choice. So across a week there, we've got seven per day. Across the week, we've got seven days, 49 effectively traffic lights we're looking for. If 40 or more of those are green, they're doing really well. And then if we can talk about if, if it's consistently that something is an amber, what's going on here that makes it the amber? And it becomes more of a, a logistical conversation and a knowledge one. It's okay, why haven't you got the thing you need at that time? Is it because you're moving from place to place? Yeah. Is it because you didn't have time to prep it? And once you've got the basics of nutrition, and it's a lot less about the science and chemistry and nutrition, much more about the behavioral and organizing of people's lives. So that's a way people can track. If they don't want to track calories and macros, that traffic light system is, is a good way to go. And I use that more than anything else. It's a good idea. Yeah. I think that wraps it up. I think we got through a lot of good stuff there. So that was really interesting. Perfect. Yeah, love Thor- it. Thoroughly enjoyable. I think a lot of takeaways for people. Um, well, hopefully not too many. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, nice, nice. <laughs> Go easy on the big bad toys. Right. We insert some canned laughter in. Post it. Fantastic. All right, thank you for joining us, uh, Joe. I think we've got one more podcast with yourself coming up, which is uh, rugby uh, field sport related. Yeah, I think we're going to do a rugby nutrition specials. That's right. I think so. I think so. Point one. No Big Macs. No Big Macs. Now a Big Mac chat. So, uh, yeah, look, look forward to that one. It's nice really one. Good. We'll get that hooked up in the next few weeks. So, thanks for tuning in, guys. Yeah, cheers. Thank you, Joe. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers.